Section 60 of the Catholic's Ready Answer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Duchepec. The Catholic's Ready Answer by Reverend M. P. Hill. Miracles. Objections. Number one, the universal experience of mankind, as Hume reminds us, is a proof of the impossibility of miracles. Number two, reported miracles cannot be proved to be real ones. Number three, if miracles are possible, science has no meaning, as science has established the constancy and uniformity of natural laws, and miracles are violations of natural laws. The answer. Experience has to do with the past. It can tell me nothing with absolute certainty about the future. It can tell me what has taken place, but it does not assure me that the opposite cannot take place. Universal experience tells me that water quenches fire, but it can tell me nothing as to whether on some particular occasion water will not fail to quench fire. Experience is the besetting idea of the whole school of philosophy of which Hume may be regarded as the progenitor. But here the idea is run into the ground. In the course of the present article, we shall see how a special experience may report a class of facts beyond the range of ordinary experience. A miracle is an effect that cannot have been produced by any natural agency and must be attributed to the direct power of God. It is produced in nature, but not by nature. The definition as thus understood excludes the act of creation, as creation does not work in nature, but gives nature its origin. In a less strict sense of the word, the power exercised by an angel over matter may be called miraculous. The moral effect produced by either kind of miracle may be the same, as in either case intervention from on high is manifest. A miraculous event is always of a kind to excite wonder, hence its name, which is from the Latin miraculum, a wonderful occurrence. The wonder is aroused by the striking contrast between what is witnessed in what happens in the ordinary course of nature. In reference to natural laws, miracles may be divided into three classes. Some are above natural laws, as when a dead man is restored to life. Others are contrary to natural laws, as when a stone remains suspended in the air without any support. Others, again, are simply apart from or independent of natural laws, as when a fractured limb that might be healed by a physician is healed by the touch of a saintly man. In all these classes of miracles, either the substance of what occurs or the manner in which it occurs makes it impossible to attribute it to any natural agency. Miracles are possible. Granted the existence of an omnipotent God who is the author and preserver of all finite things. 
it is inconceivable that he should not be sovereign master and controller of that which is the work of his hands. If a human inventor can modify or interfere with the working of a piece of mechanism, which is the product of his own brain, much more easily can God interfere with the mechanisms of the universe. This simple demonstration must be convincing to anyone who believes in an all-powerful God. And as to the atheist, he must at least admit that if there is a God, he can interfere in his own creation. But it may be objected to this reasoning that although, absolutely speaking, God can interfere with the action of natural laws, nevertheless, it would be inconsistent with his infinite wisdom to do so. Nature's laws are of God's own making and are sufficient for the purposes of his creation. Why then should he interfere with their working? Our answer to the objection is that nature's laws are sufficient for the ordinary purposes of creation, but that higher purposes may be served by miracles. By means of miracles, God impresses upon us the truth that nature's laws proceed from Him and are subject to Him. By miracles, He can put the seal of His approbation on the words and deeds of those whom He has commissioned to preach His revelation. By miracles, He can show forth the merits of chosen souls whom He has set up as beacon lights in the church. By miracles, he can give a striking proof that he still abides with his church and is exercising a continual providence over it. We are more impressed by what is unusual and exceptional than by what is ordinary and commonplace. And hence, it is by extraordinary supernatural events that God accomplishes the higher and more special purposes of his providence. The stock objection against miracles in our age is made in the name of physical science. But we must distinguish between science and scientists. Certain scientists have used science as a weapon in attempting to overthrow a belief in miracles. But they have never advanced beyond their first line of attack. They argue against miracles chiefly by repeating almost by route one and the same hackneyed formula. They tell us that nature's laws are constant and uniform in their operation, that water quenches fire and stones fall to the ground by virtue of fixed and unchangeable laws, and that miracles are a contradiction of this principle. But an answer has long since been given to the objection, to wit, that the laws in question are uniform and constant in their action so far as the purely natural order is concerned, but that we have no warrant for concluding that the natural order may not be subject to interference from a higher order. To this, the feeble rejoinder is made that if exceptions to natural laws be once admitted, science can never be sure of its conclusions. Certainly, we answer, it can never be sure of its conclusions if there is no means of distinguishing exceptions from the rule. But the miracle, of its very nature, points to and emphasizes an exception, as such, to natural laws.
Its very name, in fact, arises from the astonishment felt at the departure from natural law. Here, preeminently, the exception proves the rule. The rule remains intact and science is saved. The scientists with whom we are dealing may not believe in a supernatural order. In that case, let them spend their endeavors on disproving its existence, in which task, however, they can derive no possible aid from physical science. But that is the crucial question. For once a supernatural order is admitted, the possibility of its interfering with the natural order must be evident. Science, after all, has added nothing to ordinary knowledge that tends to make a miracle more astonishing, or at first sight, less credible. From the days of Adam, it has been known that a stone released from the hands falls to the ground. If by a miracle the stone should be suspended in the air, the fact is not more astonishing today because science has given a name to the law by which the stone falls, or has discovered more about the extent of its empire, or has defined the mode of its behavior. And even where science has discovered a law hitherto unknown, exceptions to the law are no more astonishing than if the law had been known from the beginning of time. Why then invoke with so much solemnity the name of science against the belief in miracles, as though science had imported a new element into the controversy? Miracles can be known and recognized as miracles. In the first place, they can be known and recognized simply as extraordinary events, whether their true cause be known or not. As they commonly appeal to the senses, it is only necessary that the senses be in a healthy condition. As a matter of fact, in the history of Christianity, many such events have been observed by numerous witnesses, by sober-minded, unimaginative, nay skeptical observers, and their wonderful character has been acknowledged. It is a profound mistake in our opponents to assume that all reports of miracles are old wives' tales. In the city of Naples, there has occurred many times a year for centuries a miracle that has baffled every attempt to explain it by natural causation. We refer to the liquefaction of the blood of St. Joanarius. It has occurred in the sight of immense throngs and has been witnessed and even investigated by distinguished scientists. Naples is in the track of modern travel, and hard-headed northerners as well as enthusiastic southerners have been drawn to the scene of the miracle by curiosity. If not all who have come to scoff have remained to pray, certainly a profound impression has been made upon the more thoughtful. Lourdes in France, another splendid theater of the miraculous, has furnished hundreds of cases of cures that have arrested the attention of men of science. These wonders have been acknowledged as facts for which no explanation could be found in nature. The sifting and the recording of evidence of miracles at the Grotto of Lourdes is not left to haphazard, but is organized in the hands of a permanent body of experts, whose work is open to the inspection of all comers. Sudden and complete cures of diseases pronounced incurable by the medical profession are recorded by the hundred. 
we shall have more to say about the Lord's miracles presently. In the second place, miracles may be known and recognized precisely as miracles, and not merely as wonderful events brought about by some unknown cause. To be able to pronounce an event miraculous, I must be sure that no natural cause has produced it, and that it has been caused supernaturally. It does not follow, however, that I must be acquainted with every law of nature. It is sufficient to know that one law has been contravened, and that, at least, the circumstances connected with the event exclude the action of all other natural laws. This is the kind of process gone through by official appraisers of miracles in the Catholic Church. But it will be objected. How is it possible by a consideration of any circumstances to eliminate all the unknown laws of nature? Our knowledge of nature is limited, and when we see a thing happen that is contrary to all the known laws of nature, is it not reasonable to suppose that if we knew more, we should have no difficulty in explaining the event by purely natural causation? Let us endeavor to do full justice to this objection, which is urged by some scientists of our day. The scientific habit of mind necessarily prompts one to seek a natural cause for any interference with a known law of nature. And it is intelligible that a non-believing scientist, though dumbfounded at the sight of a miracle, should not easily surrender to evidence in favor of the supernatural. But in our generation, there are many scientists who need to broaden their horizon. It is desirable, in particular, that all men of science should be acquainted with the processes followed by those whose business it is to determine the genuineness of alleged miracles. These processes would be found to be as strictly logical as any that physical science can boast of. Within the pale of physical science, when an inquiry is set on foot to determine the cause of a given mysterious phenomenon, the process of elimination is one of the first steps taken. The next is the seeking of positive evidence in favor of one cause in particular, of whose action and presence there are prima facie indications. A brilliant example was witnessed in the series of experiments made by Pasture to test the conclusions of another distinguished scientist in favor of spontaneous generation. The one alleged cause was eliminated and the true cause positively demonstrated. Such experiments bespeak the true nature of science, and we mention them because an analogous method of inquiry, and one no less thorough, is employed by the authorities of the Catholic Church in investigating the genuineness of miracles. The first stage of the process results in the establishment of the fact that the cure, if it be a case of that kind, cannot be accounted for by any known natural agency, and this conclusion is based on the testimony of medical experts. The next step is to determine whether the circumstances of the case are of a kind to warrant the elimination of all natural causation from the inquiry and the attributing of the effect to a supernatural cause. At the famous Grotto of Lourdes, 
the systematic investigation of cases of miraculous healing is a typical illustration of the first part of the process. If our scientific skeptics would take the trouble to acquaint themselves with the work of the Medical Office, of Bureau de Constatation, a permanent body of experts at Lourdes, the whole subject of miracles would be seen under a new aspect. The function of the Bureau is to examine into circumstances of the cures in their purely medical bearings. Both its work and the records kept of it are open to inspection and physicians in great numbers, many of them leaders in their profession and members of distinguished medical bodies have availed themselves of the opportunity to observe phenomena which had been making so great a stir in the world. In a period of 14 years, from 1890 to 1904, as many as 2,712 medical men visited the Bureau, and many of them were present at the moment when those who had been cured instantaneously at the grotto had hastened to present themselves for examination at the medical office. As a matter of course, many of the doctors present on those occasions ignored the supernatural. But we are not concerned just here with their interpretation of the facts. It is enough for our purpose to know that the facts were recognized as facts, especially the fact of the naturally incurable nature of the diseases and the fact of their perfect cure. An examination of the register of the medical office for which we are indebted to Georges Bertrand, Lourdes, a history of its apparitions and cures, brings into prominence a number of distinctive features of the medical record which tell a wonderful tale of the mercies vouchsafed at the grotto or otherwise connected with a devotion to Our Lady of Lourdes. They are principally the following. Number one, the immense number of records of complete cures. About five years ago, 1910, the number had reached 3,962, though the actual number of cures was probably over 7,000. For many wonderful cases had occurred before the medical office was established, and many cases had not been reported. But what is more notable still, many cures have been purposely excluded from the records for reasons which we shall consider later. Number 2. The Remarkable Variety of the Diseases Healed Diseases nearly always at an advanced stage of development and in numerous cases pronounced incurable. The list given by Bertrand must very nearly exhaust the category of human ailments. Diseases organic as well as functional, lesions and fractures, tumors and cancers, deafness and blindness, are examples of distempers that have disappeared in the twinkling of an eye. Medical skill has done wonders, but never in the history of medicine has any drug or any form of treatment cured indifferently all manner of diseases. Number three, the exclusiveness of the records. Not all genuine cures are registered. What the doctors in charge want most of all are cases which medicine is unable to heal. What they wish most to exclude are cases which the critical or the prejudiced might attribute 
to some known natural agency, especially that which is known as suggestion. Hence the small space occupied in the register by nervous diseases. And yet many such cases might well have been registered. For if medical authorities rightly inform us, few serious nervous disorders are radically or permanently cured by medical treatment, even by the special devices of psychotherapy. And many such cures, though actually wrought at Lourdes, are excluded from the register. On the other hand, many that are recorded are among those which adepts in psychotherapy have declared to be beyond the reach of their art. Among others, neurothesinia. On the Lourdes records, we find as many as 78 cases of neurothesinia cured. The records thus dispose of the objection so carelessly and unscrupulously made that the so-called cures of Lourdes are those of neurotics. But the objection has never been mooted by genuine medical authorities who have visited the medical office and have found themselves in the presence of actual cases. The general reader should understand that the anxiety of the Lourdes doctors to exclude nervous cases from their registers is due to the reputation, mostly undeserved, of hypnotizers and faith healers in regard to the cure of nervous disorders. Now these practitioners employ what is technically called suggestion, and it has been persistently asserted that suggestion is the healing agency at Lourdes, and that consequently, the cures cannot be attributed to divine intervention. Suggestion might be described as a species of personal influence which exercises a sort of spell over the thoughts and feelings. No reasoning is employed, but reliance is placed upon the use of strong words of assurance or of command, or upon gesture, manner, or attitude. It is called autosuggestion or self-suggestion when one, even though unconsciously, produces by the same general means a certain state of mind in himself. An ardent desire or a much-cherished idea is an example of the kind of agency that works in autosuggestion. Suggestion, so far as it is successful, acts upon the nerves and has often been used even by non-specialists for the cure of nervous diseases. It has been asserted, as we have said, that suggestion is the force that operates at Lourdes, and that the form it assumes there is that of an intense faith, often made more intense by the devotional enthusiasm of great crowds. It has been maintained that not only nervous ailments, but all the multitudinous forms of disease completely, permanently, and oftentimes instantaneously healed at the grotto have been cured by faith, and by faith acting directly as a physical agent, which amounts to telling us that faith, acting like some all-powerful drug, searches fractured bones and knits them together in an instant, searches a diseased tissue, and heals up a gaping sore under the eyes of the spectators. It sounds like a Munchausen, but it is a common refuge for many who flee from the supernatural. 
well-instructed Catholics will understand that we too attribute these miraculous cures ultimately to faith. For without faith, devotion to Our Lady of Lourdes would be an impossibility. But it need not, absolutely, be possessed by the person in whose favor the miracle is wrought. The miracle may be intended for his conversion, as was the case with Naaman the Syrian, who was healed by the prophet Eliseus. Even when faith is possessed by the patient, it only disposes him to be the recipient of a special divine favor. It acts as a moral force, not as a physical agent. Those who presume to explain these extraordinary cures with the physical action of faith, in faith they consider a purely natural feeling with no admixture of the supernatural, sometimes proceed on the false assumption that what is done at Lourdes has been done by medicine, at least by psychotherapy, and that therefore there is no need of attributing the cures to the supernatural. Now in the first place, even if such cures could be effected by medicine, it would not follow that the actual cures at the grotto are not supernatural. If medicine can cure, God also can cure. And there may be signs, as indeed there are in abundance, that at Lourdes God has chosen to exhibit His power. But the assumption is based on ignorance of the fact that the most experienced adepts in psychotherapy confess their helplessness in the presence of organic diseases and admit only partial success in the cure of nervous disorders, so that there is nothing in medicine to prove that the cures of the grotto are possibly by natural agency. Others confess that Lourdes has beaten the doctors and that medicine cannot hope to match the prodigies exhibited at the grotto. But why? Because medicine does not possess the most potent form of suggestion. Faith, working of course as a physical cause, is the supreme form of suggestion, and its power may be unlimited. States of mind are known to influence the body in strange ways. And why may not faith wrought to the highest pitch of intensity, produce such wonders as are witnessed at Lourdes. To make it clear that the miracles of Lourdes are not a matter of suggestion or of mind cure, we would observe in the first place that it is only by a misconception of things that the faith of a Catholic is put in the same category as the state of mind produced by a hypnotizer or by any professional healer. The latter is a state of surrender to the influence of the practitioner. It is a virtual resigning of the state of mind in feeling the removal of which is a condition for the restoration of health, and thus the cure, so far as it is successful at all, may be said to be in the actual progress when the surrender is being made, and the patient, in great measure, heals himself. With Catholic faith, it is different. The faith that brings a sufferer to Lourdes is a belief simply in God's power to heal him. He can have no assurance of a cure indeed. He sees many about him who have failed to receive health at the grotto, and he can contribute nothing 
to his own healing. It is commonly noted that those who seek the aid of Our Lady of Lourdes show nearly as much resignation as hope. One of the usual expressions on the lips of the sick is, May God's will be done. Or, If it is God's good pleasure, I shall be healed. This is not the mental exaltation of faith. Many whose faith has been of the deepest and purest, and whose hope has risen almost to certainty, have retired from the world-famed grotto uncured, because God so willed it. In the second place, there have been cases at Lourdes in which the persons cured have been without either faith or religious feeling. A remarkable one is that of Gabriel Gargam, who long after his miraculous cure was a well-known attendant at the piscinas of Lourdes. He had no faith in miracles, and yet he was cured in an instant. Finally, there are cases registered of the cure of infants. The fact needs no comment. Number four, the immense number of permanent cures recorded. Hundreds of cures known to be permanent were necessarily left unrecorded, but the record does not suffer very much by their omission. What a splendid record it is of health and happiness for many a one-time sufferer. The immense number of these particular records is due partly to the assiduity of the members of the Bureau who have made it a point to follow up many cases after their cure, and partly to the fact that a large percentage of the cured have returned to render thanksgiving for their recovery and to witness to their complete and lasting health. Number 5. The Record of Instantaneous Cures the most remarkable feature of the Lourdes Register is the instantaneous character of a large percentage of the cures. It has been no uncommon experience at the medical office to see men and women in the last stages of the most virulent diseases go to the grotto and return in a short while in a state of perfect health. To touch the waters or to behold the Blessed Sacrament born in procession has been enough. In an instant, perfect health has revisited frames that were fit for little more than to be cast into the grave. This has happened in the case of the most deeply seated organic diseases in cases of total blindness and of total deafness and of other no less incurable maladies. These events have happened in the open and have often been witnessed by hundreds or thousands of spectators. A most notable instance was that of Gabriel Gargam. Brought to death's door in consequence of internal injuries received in a railroad accident, and indeed thought to be dying as he lay upon a stretcher during the procession of the Blessed Sacrament, he suddenly rose to his feet after having been pinned to his bed for twenty months, he was cured. Every symptom of a frightful complication of diseases had disappeared in an instant. The circumstance we have been noticing is by far the most important of all. For whatever success medicine, general or special, has had in curing diseases, however remarkable the feats performed by surgery in our day, 
instantaneous cures are of course unheard of. The physician or surgeon does his part of the work and leaves the rest to nature. But nature requires a measurable time for the performance of its own task. At Lourdes, there is frequently not a second's duration between a shattered frame and perfect health. In a larger number of cases, the cure is not instantaneous, but its rapid progress is nothing short of marvelous, and all the more marvelous as medical science had pronounced the disease incurable. And now to sum up the evidence supplied by the records of the medical office at the grotto. We find an immense number of diseases in the most advanced stages of development cured completely, permanently, in many cases instantaneously. Diseases for which medicine, including psychotherapy, has no resources. Diseases the cure of which no scientific authority can attribute to any known natural agency. The facts have been too numerous and too public to admit of any denial. Indeed, they are so patent that many of those who shrink from admitting supernatural intervention are driven to the hypothesis that the cures are attributable to some unknown forces of nature. This hypothesis we shall examine later on. But what about the water of the grotto? May it not possess some natural qualities, wonderful in their effects, it is true, but still within the domain of nature? The question has been answered long before today. The water of the grotto has been analyzed by the most competent experts and found to be without any medicinal qualities. There are those who regard water of any kind as all but a panacea. But, if I mistake not, even they would draw the line at the cure of blindness and the sudden mending of broken bones by the application of water. In no case would the application even of medicinal waters effect an instantaneous cure. And yet patients have been cured at the grotto with the suddenness of an electric flash. Besides, Many have been cured without making any use of the waters, sometimes after praying, at other times when they found themselves in the near presence of the sacred host during the processions of the Blessed Sacrament. And now a word or two on the hypothesis that some unknown law of nature is at the bottom of the Lord's miracles. An unknown law of nature let us endeavor to understand what the hypothesis implies. Let us consider it in its bearings on a specific class of cures, that of consumption. By virtue of one law of nature, the lungs under certain conditions decay. That is to say, the tissue of the lungs has been destroyed. Corruption has invaded the material forming the cellular tissue, which is the basis of all life. To restore life to the lungs, new cells must be produced. But to produce them naturally would require a sort of natural miracle indeed, more than a miracle, a real creation, a production out of nothing. Are scientists prepared to admit the idea of a real creative force in nature 
a force that can produce something out of nothing, or even a force that can produce life in death. Again, are they willing to admit that all their science may be thrown into confusion with the suspicion that secret agencies may be at work, making against the harmony and constancy of natural activities? Why, this is the very result which skeptical scientists contend would be produced by the miraculous. We could never be certain, they tell us, of the constancy of any natural law. And this certainly would be the result if miracles did not bring with them sufficient evidence of there being only a rare and momentary interference from out a higher sphere of activities, after which nature and the science of nature are allowed to proceed on their course. In other words, if miracles were not plainly the exception that proved the rule, whereas if in nature itself a number, and indeed an indefinite number of perhaps all-powerful secret agencies be admitted, science is simply at their mercy. It has been well remarked that all new scientific knowledge, a knowledge, for instance, of some hitherto unknown law is supplementary, not destructive, of old knowledge, and that every new law discovered harmonizes with laws previously known. Such is nature as men have always known it. But there may be those who are not so sensitive to the fate of science, but who cling tenaciously to the hypothesis of hidden laws, because otherwise they would be quite at sea in attempting to account for facts which cannot be gainsaid. While granting for the argument's sake, the existence of such hidden laws. How does it happen that Lourdes enjoys such a monopoly of their effects and of their benefits? Is Lourdes one of their favorite habitats? And if they are real laws and are supposed to act like laws, why do they show so much caprice by refusing their favors to some and dispensing them to others, although the conditions are the same in all cases? Or if it is faith that gives a stimulus to their activities, why are not their blessings dispensed in proportion to the intensity of the faith, which they certainly are not? Indeed, there seems to be no law whatever in the matter. So varied are the circumstances under which cures are or are not affected. If there is one hidden law concerned, there is at least a score of them, and they very accommodatingly permit one another to act by turns. But the discussion is in danger of becoming too ridiculous for the gravity of the average reader. We must turn to the second stage of the process used in verifying reported miracles. Lourdes illustrates the first stage. There, as we have seen, a systematic professional study of reputed miracles has for many years been organized. The most liberal provision has been made for just that sort of professional scrutiny of the miraculous, which certain scientists have been so loudly demanding. And we may remark in passing that now they can satisfy their scientific cravings to their heart's content, we hope they will not fail to respond to the invitation first given by Philip to the incredulous Nathaniel, Come and see. The value of the testimony furnished by the medical office cannot be overestimated.
it proves beyond doubt that the cures cannot be accounted for by the operation of any known natural laws. And thus, the first part of the process we have been studying is aptly illustrated in actual practice. The second part of the process is to seek for evidence of supernatural intervention. The process as a whole is as logical, nay more so, and as rigidly scientific as any that can be shown in the sphere of natural sciences. Facts are demanded, and the significance of the facts is carefully weighed. The Roman tribunals are almost proverbial for the care with which they sift the evidence for miracles when there is question of the canonization of a saint. Father Perone, the distinguished theologian, tells us that once having shown the process for certain miracles to an eminent Protestant lawyer, the latter expressed himself as entirely satisfied and thought such evidence would not be rejected by an English jury, but was astonished when told that the evidence was not considered sufficient by the Congregation of Rites. A similar incident is reported by Alban Butler on the authority of Dobbinton, the local commission appointed to inquire into the genuineness of the Lourdes miracles and into the events leading up to them showed an equal degree of care in its search for the truth. It spent four years in its investigations and left no stone unturned to come at the real facts. The first circumstance to be noted about these extraordinary cures is that directly or indirectly they are inseparately associated with the Grotto of Lourdes. Whether they are wrought at the Grotto itself or a thousand miles away, whether they have followed upon the use of the water or have occurred after prayer for relief, whether they have taken place in the Lourdes Basilica or in the out-of-door procession of the Blessed Sacrament, the Grotto is the moral center from which this salutary influence has radiated throughout the world. What is there in the place, or what has happened in it, to make it such a unique source of blessings? Is not this the first question to which the true man of science who admitted the cures would require an answer? The history of Lourdes under this particular aspect is well authenticated. The period is little more than half a century, and during that time the eyes of the world have been upon Lourdes. Hundreds and thousands of witnesses have been available. Investigations have been made and records kept. And facts so well certified are deserving of no less attention than the undoubted facts of natural science. In the month of February 1858, Bernadette Subiru, a girl of 14 but younger than her years, simple, artless, and slow of understanding, was suddenly favored by a vision of a heavenly form, showing itself in a niche of rock, which has since been known the world over as the Grotto of Lourdes. The apparition was that of a lady of ravishing beauty. The child felt drawn to prayer and recited her rosary. The lady also had a pair of beads in her hands, which she merely passed through her fingers in unison with the child, but without praying, except when she came to the glory be to the Father, 
at the end of each decade. The first apparition was followed by 17 others on successive days. The lady made herself known to the child as the Blessed Virgin, though she designated herself particularly as the Immaculate Conception. The dogma of the Immaculate Conception had been proclaimed a little more than three years before, but the child knew nothing of the import of the phrase, as her after-inquiries proved. She had been slow in acquiring a knowledge of her faith and had not yet been prepared for her first communion. The incident of the ladies reciting only the glory be to the Father in the rosary was, if we may use the phrase, true to the nature touchingly, so as the Immaculate could not recite prayers which imply sin, in some degree, in the one praying. But the circumstance was quite beyond the child's own thinking powers. She could report, however, what she had seen and heard. The eighteen visions were all of them received whilst the girl was in the presence of witnesses who came on the first days by the score, afterward by the hundred, later by the thousand. On one occasion, there were fifteen or twenty thousand present. During her visions, the child seemed to be praying at times and again to be speaking to her wonderful visitor or listening to her. She had a message from the lady that a church must be built in her honor and processions organized to the scene of the apparitions, both of which requests have since been amply complied with. At times, during her ecstasies, the flame of a blessed candle which she held in her right hand was in contact with the fingers of the left, on one occasion, for at least a quarter of an hour, but without affecting the fingers in the slightest degree. Persons in such abnormal states are known not to feel pain from contact with such objects, but for the living tissue not to be affected is anomalous. Bernadette's fingers were not even singed. Another visible occurrence witnessed by the assembled crowds, and one that has brought Lourdes the greater part of its celebrity, was the wonderful opening of the spring at the grotto a spring that now flows in a copious stream and from which thousands have drunk for the healing of their infirmities. During one of the visions, the child was directed to pass from where she was standing to the left of the grotto and told to drink from and wash in the water of a spring. There was no spring to be found and none had ever been known to have been there. But the child scraped the soil and scooped some of it away, and immediately water began to flow. It increased daily in volume, and today, after many a long year of uninterrupted abundance, it flows in a copious stream, supplying many large cisterns from which the water of Lourdes has been conveyed to the ends of the earth. The water of Lourdes is today a household word throughout Christendom. There is another circumstance connected with these apparitions of quite a distinctive character. One day, as the child herself relates, the lady for an instant did not look at me, but looked beyond my head, and then again at me. I asked her what made her sad, and she said, Pray for poor sinners. Pray for the world 
which is in such trouble. On the occasion of another ecstasy, for a moment the child turned toward the spectators with tearful face and sobbing voice. She repeated three times, penance, penance, penance. She declared afterward that these were the very words she had heard the lady utter. This circumstance is noteworthy as throwing light upon the moral purpose of the apparitions. The spring at the grotto, which grew from a tiny rivulet to a full-flowing stream, soon became famous as having miraculous powers of healing. It was tested, as we have seen, for medicinal qualities, but was found to possess none. But it was used not as a newly discovered drug might be used, or as a thing that possessed any healing virtue in itself, but as a natural element to which a supernatural efficacy had been given from above. Cures have been wrought, as we have seen, without the use of the water, but in all cases in connection with devotion to Our Lady of Lourdes. The extraordinary publicity of the events we have been narrating compelled the attention and the practical interest of professional men and of the public authorities, civil and ecclesiastical. The result was that the evidence for the apparitions and the miracles was sifted with a care that left no loophole of escape for the skeptical. Both in the beginning and for many a year after, Bernadette stood the test of all manner of professional scrutiny, which aimed at proving, if possible, that her experiences were due to hallucination, or to hysteria, or to an abnormal degree of suggestibility, or that she had been guilty of willful deception. But her life, her temperament, and her manner of describing what she had seen and heard were conclusive against any such hypotheses. And was there not visible and public confirmation of what she had recounted? Fortunately, her life was preserved for many a year and showed no developments that tended to reverse the favorable verdict of her judges. We have been endeavoring to illustrate the process followed in the determining of the true character of reputed miracles. In the case of the Lord's miracles, having eliminated natural causes from the inquiry, we have weighed the evidence for the supernatural, and the result is that the possibilities of causation are narrowed down to one thing, devotion to Our Lady of Lourdes. Now if under so great a variety of circumstances, effects beyond the power of nature are seen to follow the acts of this particular devotion, and especially if these effects have an historical background of supernatural manifestations which are well vouched for, is it not in accordance with the strictest rules of scientific investigation to attribute the effects to the devotion as the instrument of supernatural power? When explaining at the beginning of this essay the nature of a miracle we distinguished between the stricter type of miracles, or those wrought directly by the power of God, and the effects produced by finite beings in the other world, whose superior powers give them a dominion over matter. Now in most cases, it is impossible to know, except by revelation, to which of the two classes a proved miracle belongs. But to whichever of the two classes, it must be assigned. It may in some sense be called supernatural, and the same moral effect 
is produced. A wonderful event has taken place contrary to all the laws of nature, and manifestly by intervention from on high. This, it seems to us, we have shown to demonstration to have been the case with the miracles of Lourdes. To those who believe in a God and in a providence, the evidence for the supernatural in these miracles should be doubly convincing. For how could a provident God permit such multiplied signs of his special presence and power in a particular place, and that too, with such evident increase of piety and of trust in his goodness and power, unless the reality were there no less than the appearance? Critical as the age is, it is difficult to see where any of its tests can succeed in breaking down the evidence for these miracles in any one particular. If an investigator is so dead set against the supernatural as to have no patience in examining the evidence for it, it would be a miracle if he were convinced. The true man of science is supposed to be open-minded enough to accept any evidence of facts, no matter from what quarter the evidence comes. If certain men of science would make a study of the Lord's miracles, with even half the zeal with which they have studied spiritistic phenomena, their pains would be better rewarded. As an introduction to the study, we would recommend a work already mentioned, Lourdes, A History of Its Apparitions and Cures, by Georges Bertrand. Concerning this work, the Annales de Science Physique, a skeptical review whose chief editor is Dr. Richet, professor of the medical faculty of Paris, said in the course of a long article apropos of this faithful study. On reading it, unprejudiced minds cannot but be convinced that the facts stated are authentic. Catholic Encyclopedia, Lourdes. Though we are chiefly concerned in this article with objections urged by the scientific skeptic, we cannot close without having a word or two with our Protestant friends. The most general Protestant view of miracles is that, whilst they are possible and have actually taken place, they cease to be wrought at the end of the apostolic age. What conceivable warrant is there for such an assumption? Neither history no revelation, nor anything in the nature of things can make it even plausible. History furnishes, if anything, positive indications to the contrary. Revelation from the lips of our Lord gave assurance of signs and wonders that were to accompany the preaching of the gospel, whilst it placed no limit of time to their occurrence. And some little reflection should convince one of the unlikelihood of the cessation of miracles at a time when they seem to be as much needed as ever. According to the Protestant view, at least in its implications, as soon as the last of the apostles died, the need of such supernatural manifestations ceased. But again, what warrant for the assumption? The truth is that the Protestant tenet is a traditional prejudice rather than a reasoned opinion. It had its origin in that undiscriminating hostility shown by the first reformers to many things, good and bad, which might with some degree of plausibility be set down as superstitions. Superstitions there were, and miracles, 
like many another good thing, might be counterfeited or too easily taken as facts. But good and bad are likely to be confounded when overtaken by such a whirlwind of revolution as lighted on the early 16th century. A tempest is a poor instrument for thrashing out the truth. Happily, after the storm had passed, many sincere minds discovered that they had lost their true Christian bearings and hastened to recover them. And many in succeeding generations down to the present day have imitated their example. Let us hope that the continuous evidence of special divine favor enjoyed by the Church may prevail upon many in our day to review their whole mental attitude toward a Church which unfortunately they have been taught to regard as a patroness of superstition. End of section 60. Miracles. Recording by Tony Ducepec.